Um, would you pray with me, please, before I get started? Gracious Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You are so kind and so loving. You're faithful and you're true. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning with music and with song. I pray now, Lord, as we open up your word, that you would speak to our hearts. You tell us that your word is living and active, uh, sharper than a double-edged sword. And Lord, I pray that your word uh, would cut to our hearts, would speak to our souls, um, and tell us, Lord, what you want us to hear today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to talk about today is the topic of surrender. And you guys are actually lucky. I had this whole pop quiz that outlined that I was going to have some questions, some military questions about what it means to surrender. Um, but as Steve said, I got like three hours of content, so I've got to, I had to eliminate the pop quiz. Um, but what I want to talk about is um, some typical ways that we normally think of surrender. Um, and then I want to talk about framing that in a biblical context, um, because I think what happens is surrender is can have a negative connotation, right? It's like, I don't want to surrender. Um, and we can carry some of that, that baggage um, when we talk about surrendering to God. <clears throat> so let's talk about some of our uh, typical definitions of surrender. To stop resisting to an enemy or an opponent and submit to their authority. The laying down of arms, weapons, or property. One side has lost when you surrender. An admission of defeat. I don't know about you, but none of those sound real attractive to me. I don't want to lose. I don't want to give up. I want to win. I want to be in control. So I think when we talk about what it means surrendering to God, that we can pull in this baggage um, of what it means to surrender if we're thinking about it in a military context. It's interesting how we can surrender in other ways of our lives, but not thinking of it as surrender. So for work, I travel a fair amount. Um, and as a result, I find myself sitting on a lot of airplanes. So what do you do when you get on a plane? You get on the plane, go to my seat, maybe get to put my luggage in the overhead bin, um, if I'm lucky, um, and I put my seatbelt on. What don't I do? I don't tell the pilot at what altitude to fly, or how fast to go, or which route to take. I surrender or I give up control that the pilot and the plane will get me to where I want to go, that they have calculated the safest, fastest, and best route based on weather conditions and other air traffic. I am fully surrendered at that point, putting my hope and my trust in the pilot, uh, his ability, her, her ability, uh, and that plane. Who's had to have surgery and be put under anesthesia? Did you tell the doctors how to do the surgery? No. You surrendered to their care. I hear someone might have tried to do that over here. <laughs> um, I've had a couple of back surgeries, and, and I didn't negotiate with the doctors beforehand. I didn't tell them what kind of anesthesia to use or how much anesthesia to use. I didn't tell them where to make the incision. I put my full trust in those doctors that they were going to do the right thing. So we can surrender in other areas of our lives, even if we're not thinking of it as surrender, like being on an airplane or being put under for a surgery. So surrendering to God can be a difficult thing. And if we can surrender to a pilot or a doctor or a surgeon who are imperfect people, I propose we can surrender to our perfect Heavenly Father who loves us. So rather than thinking about surrender equating to losing, 
or defeat like we would in a military battle. Think of surrendering to God as winning. When we surrender to God, we win, and it is, it is the absolute best place for us. So what is a biblical definition of what it means to surrender? Here's some ones to consider. Surrender starts with the realization that everything we have isn't actually ours at all. That's a tough one right out of the gate. What do you mean everything I have isn't really mine? My name's on the deed of the house. My name's on the title of the car. I bought it with my money. You bet it's mine. If we can be thinking about being managers of God's resources rather than owners of stuff, that is the beginning of understanding what it means to surrender. We simply manage what he has entrusted to us. You see, I won't cling too tightly or I'll be more willing to share it or even give it away if I believe that God has provided it to me to begin with. It's holding what he's given us with open hands. It's loving the giver of the gift more than the gift itself. Surrender is a blank check without restrictions. It's us telling God, all I have, all I am, all I ever hope to be, I offer to you. Surrendering is giving up my right to the outcome. Surrender is dying to self. Denying ourselves is hard to do. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it. We want to be in control. What does Jesus say about this? Luke 9.23. And Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? This was the night before his crucifixion. What did Jesus say to his father? In Matthew 26, 39, it says, he, meaning Jesus, fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Even though Jesus was God, Jesus is God. He deferred to the father and denied himself. He went through the beatings and suffering on the cross so that we may have life if we surrender to him. Another definition, surrender is being available to God. Are you available to God? Are you fully and wholly available to him? Or are there parts of your life that you're holding back, keeping from him? Are there some areas that are closed doors or off limits to him? Have you partitioned or quarantined areas of your life from him? If you are holding back, what's holding you back? What's keeping you from being fully surrendered to God? I want to pivot now and talk about what surrender isn't. There are a couple of words that sometimes are used interchangeably with the word surrender. Those are the words obedience and sacrifice. And I want to try and differentiate how surrendering is different than obedience and sacrifice. Surrender is different than obedience because you can obey a lot of the laws of God and not be surrendered. Think of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious rulers in Jesus' time. They were the ones running the temple and supposedly teaching the people about God. They weren't doing a very good job at it. They created laws not to break the laws. 
They had 613 laws that they had to follow. And we thought the Ten Commandments was hard enough um, or enough. They were obedient. However, their hearts were far from God. Some of Jesus' harshest and most critical words were for the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, um, verses 23 through 28, it's on page 829 in the Bibles uh, in front of you. In Matthew 23, there are actually seven woes to the Pharisees and the scribes. The scribes are the folks who um, would copy down God's words. We're just going to go through a few of these, and I think you're going to get the idea pretty quickly. Now, I knew the word woe um, was not a good one. However, I looked it up to see what a definition was. And here are some other words associated with the word woe. A condition of deep suffering, misfortune, affliction, or grief. Catastrophic trouble, disaster, tragedy. These are the words Jesus is using to describe the Pharisees who were being obedient. Uh, now, I've added the, the highlighted text here for emphasis. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, which are spices, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Sometimes I think Jesus had a little sense of humor with his, <laughs> with his analogies. Um, what is Jesus saying here? They're majoring in the minors. They're strictly following the tithing rules around spices, yet have forgotten what is most important to God, things like mercy and justice. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. God is more concerned with the condition of your insides, your heart, your soul, than your external obedience. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. If you've ever been to a cemetery, you will see different types of gravestones. Some are really ornate, some are more basic. Even the, mo the most basic ones look nice on the outside. They're usually made of marble or granite, and they have a smooth side um, that is polished where the engraving goes. But no matter how nice the outside of the gravestone is, what's underneath? Inside the ground and in the casket is death and bones. This is the analogy Jesus is using with the Pharisees. Nice and polished on the outside, however, obedience uh, and outward obedience on the outside, but dead and full of hypocrisy on the inside. Surrender is more than letting go and letting God. Have you ever heard anyone use this phrase before? This, is, this phrase has become um, somewhat of a, of a uh, Christian cliche, letting go and letting God. Um, you know, people, I, I'm letting go and I'm letting God. And, and I know what people mean when they say that. Uh, and I think their heart is in the right spot. Um, but I think there's a trap. Um, the potential trap, if we're not careful, is that 
to surrender to God, to let go and let God is hard work. And there's an implied passivity when we say let go and let God. It's almost like, I don't need to do anything else. I'm going to let go and let God. It's like Jesus take the wheel and I'm just along for the ride, right? No, if you've ever tried to surrender to something, if you've ever tried dying to self, it's hard work. You've got to lean in. You've got to double down. It takes active involvement to let go and let God. Surrender is not putting conditions on your relationship with God. I will follow you if. I will follow you if you take this problem away. I will follow you if you get me out of this jam. I will follow you if you heal me of this sickness or disease. I will follow you if you get me a new job. I will follow you if you store this relationship. Or I will follow you when. I will follow you when I get out of school, if you're a student. For parents, I will follow you when my kids get out of school. (laughs) I will follow you when I'm not so busy. I will follow you when I retire. Surrender equals I will follow you, period. I will follow you, period. So we see how surrender is different than obedience. Let's take a look at how surrender is different than sacrifice. Surrender is different than sacrifice that when I'm sacrificing, I'm in, I can be in control. You can make big sacrifices for God and still be in control. I decide what to sacrifice. I decide how much to sacrifice. I decide how much to give. I decide when to serve. I decide how to serve. What's the reoccurring theme here? I, 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 I. God doesn't want our sacrifices if they aren't coming from a surrendered heart. Last week, Pastor Steve talked about the story of David and Bathsheba and how he committed adultery with her. He then had her husband killed, Uriah, uh, in battle, an attempt to cover his tracks and hide his sin. Psalm 51 is David crying out to God in repentance. And this is what he says about sacrifices. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Contrite means to be remorseful or repentant. Oh God, you will not despise. A burnt offering was a way uh, that God had provided for people to make amends for their sins. David is saying that God wants a broken, remorseful heart more than empty sacrifice. God wants repentance instead of rituals. He wants relationship over religion. Authentic biblical Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with the one true living God. Religion is man's attempt to appease or pacify or satisfy God. Religion religion is us trying to earn or win God's favor. I'm giving, I'm serving, I'm going to church, 
I've done all these things to check the box and try to satisfy God. Look how good I am. Now that I've done all these things, Lord, I've checked the box. Now get off my back and leave me alone for the rest of the week, will you? That's religion. You can be dutiful with external things and not have a surrendered heart. So I created a word picture to try and explain what this looks like. Um, I hope it makes sense to you. It all starts with our hearts being surrendered to God. When our hearts are surrendered to him, things like sacrifice and obedience will flow naturally from our heart. When we realize how much God loves us and we realize the depth of our sin and what he has saved us from, we find joy in serving. And things like sacrifice and obedience come more naturally and easily and not begrudgingly. We can actually get excited about doing these things because it's an honor to partner with God for his mission. Our desires begin to align with his desires. Now that we've talked a little bit about what biblical surrender is and isn't, I want to look at an amazing passage of scripture. Uh, it's found in Genesis 22. It's in page 16 of your Bibles. Um, this is a story of God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's an incredible story. And we see there are times when God will demand something from us. He will want to know if our heart and affection are completely his. He might detest our devotion to him. I'm going to read the text and it'll be on the screen as well. I'm going to read through this uh, verses 1 through 14, and then we're going to go back in and dig a little deeper. <clears throat> Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took took two of his young men with him, or servants, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over and worship and come again to you. Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood, the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, put it on his back. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they, both, so they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord said to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went 
and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the, the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now let's go back in uh, to that first section and dig a little deeper. Verse 1 and verse 2. God says to Abraham, and he says, here I am. Abraham knew God's voice, and he was available. Remember one of our definitions of biblical surrender is being available to God. Abraham says, here I am. He also recognizes, recognizes the voice of God. Do you know God's voice in your life? How do you know when God is speaking to you? I've never heard an audible voice from God. However, through his Holy Spirit, he does speak in different ways. He will prompt me to do something or not to do something. We need to train ourselves to hear the voice of God. And in this day of constant barrage of social media, Twitter feeds, Facebook, Instagram posts, binge watching on Netflix, and other noise, we have to be even more intentional than ever about listening for his voice. We just concluded the comfortable series. One possible indication of God prompting you to do something is that you may feel uncomfortable. Maybe he wants you to forgive someone. Maybe he wants you to have a difficult conversation. Maybe he wants you to be generous with your time or an asset. Let's keep going. So Abraham hears God's voice, and what does God say? Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, we don't have time to go into this at length uh, today, but if you know this story and kind of the, the background, you know that Isaac is not Abraham's only son. Abraham is married to Sarah, and Sarah was barren. She could not have children. So in her desperation to have a child, she circumvented God's plan and had her husband, told her husband to sleep with one of her servants named Hagar. Hagar and Abraham had a son named Ishmael. Eventually, God uh, told Sarah that she and Abraham would have their own son, and God was going to build the nation of Israel through this son's bloodline, Isaac, not Ishmael's. It's interesting to note here uh, what Abraham did not do when God asked him to do probably the hardest thing he's ever had to do, kill his son. He doesn't delay He doesn't dilly-dally around. He doesn't say, I need to pray about this. He doesn't call up three friends and ask what he should do. We don't see Abraham questioning God's command. He doesn't yeah, but God. I don't know about you, but I'm, a good, I'm good at this one. I feel God calling me to do something, and I start telling him all the reasons why this is not a good idea, like coming up here. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not the right person. This isn't the right time. Yeah but, yeah, but God this. Yeah, but God that. And you know, as a parent, it drives me crazy when I ask my kids to do something, and they think my name is yeah, but. My name's not yeah, but, and God's name is certainly not yeah, but. 
We don't need to yeah, but God. If he is asking you to do something, he has already thought through all the details and the yeah, buts. Just go do it. Delayed obedience can be the same as disobedience. What does God ask you to do that you are delaying on? When you hear from God, act on it promptly without delaying. Okay, now I want to take a little detour here and talk about something that I've been guilty of. Um, I don't know about you, but I have unintentionally dehumanized some of the biblical characters. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This first picture is a picture of our nursery when our twins, Max and Maggie, were babies. And you can see we had a Noah's Ark theme. You can maybe see on the sheets, we had animals and the little animals on the wall, two by two. Very cute, right? On the wall there in the back, you can see a, um, a quilt of, of Noah's Ark. And, and I'm all for age-appropriate stories and, and teaching uh, them in a fun way that kids are going to understand. But there was nothing cute about Noah's story. People thought Noah had lost his mind. He began construction on the most enormous vessel anyone had ever seen, and not near any water. Noah was mocked, ridiculed. Noah surrendered his reputation and spent approximately 100 years of his life in hard labor building the ark. Now, here's a picture of the, uh, this is a replica of Noah's Ark. This is in northern Kentucky. I haven't been there. I know the Rice family has, Kurt and Carmen Rice have. Shout out to the, uh, to the Rices. Um, I'm hoping that we can go. I heard it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's amazing there. This next picture shows the construction of the ark. And you can see they use cranes and forklifts and had electricity and power tools, engineered lumber, all designed to fit together really nice. Noah didn't have any modern tools we have today, yet Noah pressed on, nail after nail, board after board, all on dry land. Here's one more shard of the ark, just to get a scale of this. If you look at the people up close to the ark, just how massive this thing was. And Noah built this without any of the modern technology that we have today. The Bible says Noah did everything just as God commanded him. In faith, Noah was surrendered. And Noah obeyed God regardless of popular opinion or personal cost. Noah couldn't see any rising water. However, he still followed God's leading. So let's not forget the human element when we're talking about the biblical characters. Now with that in mind, let's go back to our story of Abraham and Isaac. We're going to go back to verse 3. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, I've heard people talk about this passage before and talk about Abraham rising early. And it usually goes something like this. Look how faithful Abraham is. He is getting up early to do God's will. He's so energetic. He's so faithful. Yes, Abraham was faithful, because he listened to God. However, is it possible that he arose early because he couldn't sleep? Think about it. God has told Abraham to kill his son, the promised son, who God was going to build the nation of Israel from. Who do you love most in this world? And men, if you're, it's your wife, in case you didn't 
know the answer to that. <laughs> okay. Who do you love most in this world? Now imagine God asking you to sacrifice that person to him. That person's innocent. They haven't done anything wrong. How do you think you would sleep that night? Probably not very good. I think Abraham probably didn't sleep very well that night. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Uh, or in verse 3. And he rose early, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, or servants, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. So let me ask you a question. Why was Abraham chopping wood? Well, it says right in the text it was for the burnt offering, right? Well, let me ask the same question, but say it a little bit differently. Why was Abraham chopping wood? And we haven't talked about this yet, but Abraham had it going on. He was the man back then. Back in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham he will bless him and make him and his people a great nation. We get a little insight into this in Genesis 14, 14, where it tells us that Abraham had 318 trained men or fighting men or soldiers. Scholars estimate that in order to support an army of 318 people, uh, approximately, uh, it would take 1,000 servants. So at this point in time, scholars estimated he had a 318-man army, and he had approximately 1,000 servants. Abraham was like the Bill Gates of his day, or Warren Buffett, or Jeff Bezos, uh, founder of Amazon, or Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook. He had servants, he had livestock, he had an army. And we see that Abraham brought two servants with him on the journey to sacrifice Isaac. Okay, so what? Well, if Abraham brought servants with him, this tells me he didn't need to chop his own wood. So let me ask you a third time. Why was Abraham chopping wood? Have you ever been so distraught or troubled that you had to be doing something with your hands? There's something cathartic. There's something therapeutic. There's something releasing, almost cleansing, when we do something with our hands or physical activity. Some people run or exercise to relieve stress. There have been times when I feel like my world is spinning out of control and doing a mundane task helps me at least control a small part of it. Let me give you an example. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'll go to the garage and I'll start sweeping out the garage. There's something therapeutic about that physical activity. And if I can control the, the dirt in the garage, it helps me maybe give, get insight on controlling something bigger. Or we've got this junk drawer in our kitchen. It's a catch-all drawer for like coupons and twist ties and paper clips and a bunch of whatnot. And when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'll find myself in this junk drawer trying to make sense of it, trying to organize it. I propose that Abraham rises early because he can't sleep. He's chopping wood, even though he has brought two servants who could do that for him. With every swing of the axe, Abraham is releasing stress and trying to make sense of what God has told him to do. I want to be clear here. The Bible does not tell us what Abraham's state of mind is or what it was. I'm making an inference based on what is in the text. If somebody were to walk in here kind of shaking a wet umbrella, 
I would infer that it's raining outside. Do I know it's raining outside? No, I haven't been outside, but I would infer based on what I've seen. I'm making an illogical assumption. If we look at Abraham through this lens of humanity, I think it makes sense. I know how I would be thinking and feeling if God told me to kill one of my children. Let's keep reading. <clears throat> Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, or he put it on his back. Isaac is carrying the wood on his back. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. It's interesting there's no mention of a struggle here. It implies that Isaac trusted his father, maybe even allowing himself to be tied up. Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Just as Abraham heard God's voice in the beginning of the story and acted right away, he heard God's voice again and responds immediately. Here I am. Practicing the presence of God trains us to listen. God speaks, we listen and respond. God speaks, we listen and respond. That's being surrendered. That's dying to self. Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, there's a big theological word about what is going on here, and it's called substitutionary atonement. Let's break down what this means. Substitution, substitutionary comes from the word substitute. What is a substitute? It's a replacement, like a substitute teacher, or Splenda instead of sugar, right? We don't really use the word atonement much these days, but it comes from the root word atone, which means to compensate, to make amends. So the ram is substituting or taking the place of Isaac. And in, the, and in the ram, in this case, this is a sufficient sacrifice for God. In the Old Testament times, there were different types of sacrifices, and some of them required the shedding of blood. People would find a spotless or unblemished animal. They would sacrifice or kill it. And that animal spilled blood was the sacrifice where it provided a temporary covering of sins. Another interesting point about this story, God never gave Abraham a reason why he was to sacrifice Isaac. God gave him no reason for it. Abraham yet surrendered and acted on faith. In closing, I want to talk about another father. And this father had a son, an only son. And this father sacrificed his son. In this story, though, an angel doesn't stop the knife from coming down. In this story, God is the father. 
And Jesus is the son. And just as Isaac carried his own wood to the altar, Jesus carried his own cross, was beaten and crucified. So the penalty of sin could be taken care of forever. We do not need to sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of sins anymore. Jesus is our substitutionary atonement. He took our place in God's wrath and punishment upon himself, so we don't have to. Jesus died for your sins and my sins. He lovingly went to the cross. No one took his life from him. He laid down his life so that we might live and have eternal life with God the Father through him. What is God asking you to surrender today? Is God asking you to surrender a habit to him? Or maybe a hobby? Is an interest or hobby taking more time, money, devotion than it deserves? Or maybe there's an unhealthy relationship God is asking you to surrender to him. If you are married, are you surrendered to your spouse? Are you surrendering to one another? Maybe God is asking you to surrender always trying to be in control. Or maybe you always have to have the last word. Or you always have to be right. Or maybe God is asking you to surrender your reputation or your pride like Noah did. Or maybe you have never fully surrendered your life to him in the first place. I don't know what God is asking you to surrender to him today. However, it's a great question to ask him if you're not sure. Lord, is there anything I am keeping from you? Are there any closed off areas in my heart that I don't want to open? What am I holding back from you? Lord, give me the courage and strength to fully surrender to you. So we just finished the comfortable series. Surrendering is not comfortable. Dying to self is not comfortable or easy. True surrender will feel uncomfortable at times. However, when we give up our rights, when we give up control, we are placing our hope and trust in a heavenly father who loves us more than we will know. He can be trusted with the outcome. Let's pray. For those of you who have never surrendered their lives to God before, through his son, Jesus Christ, is God placing that on your heart today? Is he calling you to himself? If you want a change in your life, if you want forgiveness and peace and joy that you've never known before, God demands total surrender. He becomes the Lord and the ruler of your life. God said, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. He's not here to condemn you. He's here to bless you and love you and take you into his arms and say, I forgive you. I'll change your life. And when you die, you will go to heaven. You can have this 
if you will surrender totally and completely to him. But you can't hold anything back. You have to be willing. If God is placing that on your heart today, you can start all over with a new life. Jesus said you must be born again. He'll forgive all your past sins and give you power for the future. Your heart can be changed. There are no magic words or phrases. There's no formula. It's the condition of your heart before God. Is this your heart's desire? If it is, you can say something like this. Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I've made mistakes and gone my own way. I want to receive you into my heart. Forgive me of my past and all the things that I've done wrong. I want you to give me a new direction in my life. I want you to fill this empty place in my life. I receive Jesus in my heart. I trust him and him alone for my salvation. Jesus says that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me and that salvation is found in no one else. I know that I'm going to go to heaven because of him. I know my sins are forgiven because of him and I'm ready to live for him. For those of you who've already made that decision, Lord, help us to be fully surrendered to you. Help us to hear your voice and know your will and give us the courage and the strength to follow no matter the cost. In Jesus' name, amen.